0: This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That means 20 years of Texas art coverage, 20 years of publishing writing from across the state, and 20 years of showing the world all Texas has to offer. Since our publication is a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to help support our coverage, you can make a one time gift or become a sustaining donor by visiting glasstire.com forward slash donate. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zek. I'm William Saradet. And today we actually have two topics for you. The first is going to be, in case you haven't seen the news, um, the Love is in the Bin piece, which is the viral 2018 artwork by Banksy that was shredded at an auction house or shredded right after someone bought it from an auction house, has been resold um, for 18 times what the original buyer paid for it. And then our second topic is going to be um, how... uh, museums in Vienna, or more specifically, uh, the city's tourism board, has set up an OnlyFans page to show explicit art from the city's museums. Um, It's an interesting confluence of social media and nudity in art and some of the recent problems that have kind of been percolating within social media platforms and the accessibility of art on those platforms. But first, uh, the Banksy deal. So Sotheby's, uh, the auction house uh, and its London location, recently resold this artwork. So in case you don't know anything that I'm talking about, back in 2018, um, Sotheby's in London sold a uh, stenciled work on canvas by Banksy. The work was in this huge frame. It was the last work to sell in the auction that it was a part of. And after the gavel came down, after the piece was sold, the uh, artwork was essentially run through a shredder that was hidden in the frame of the piece. Um, And it was supposed to shred all the way through. It got stopped or it got stuck or it got caught or whatever halfway through. So, like, half of this work was still in the frame. Half of it was dangling out the bottom of the frame. That piece, right before it was shredded, sold for $1.4 million dollars. Um, and then it was displayed by, uh, the collector in some museums in Europe, and it was just resold in the same auction house in the same room at Sotheby's London, um, a couple of weeks ago, and it sold for $25.4 million, which is a new auction record for Banksy, and also 18 times what the original buyer paid for it before it was shredded, um, nothing happened this time around. It wasn't shredded more. It didn't self-destruct. It didn't explode. It didn't, as Artnet art critic Ben Davis said, let out a fart noise. Um, it was just sold for a lot more money. Um, there's a lot of conversations around, you know, auctions and prices and just kind of the volatility of the art market and also our desire for, um, kind of Fame and uh, artworks that make big splashes, but William, what's your what's your take on this?
1: I was just going to say, as you uh, were describing the auction uh, so eloquently, that uh, in the Ben Davis essay for ArtNet, he included a picture of Sotheby's flag outside the auction house, partially shredded, um, signaling their full cooperation. Um, co-optation perhaps of this art stunt Um, I guess some of the questions that arose when this initially happened like was the piece really supposed to be shredded completely Um, did the auction house know about this as we know auction houses do throw inspections of artworks I mean they are appraisers after all Um, You know, just the lingering question of, like, how cooperative was this event um, at its inception? Um, And I'm, again, I'm not completely cynical about that. There's lots of ways that Banksy could have concepted the idea without really giving them uh, any heads up, but they could still catch wind of it and cooperate accordingly. Um, whatever the case, the the takeaway from Ben Davis is it's more of an opinion piece, kind of, um, I think. Uh, he doesn't do, there is reportage in there, but he's very heavily um, inflecting his opinion throughout the piece. Um, his takeaway is that we're not really able to answer the question, is Sotheby's incompetent, or do they just operate under the assumption that they're dealing in things that gain value they are an auction house so obviously they do assume that their their wares that they're selling will um, attain value but I guess um I don't know I I I really really wish the painting had shredded completely it wouldn't complicate the event much more um, it would be a little bit more finalizing. Now, my skepticism lies in the idea that the artifact, the painting itself, was supposed to fall all the way through the shredder into strips on the floor that somebody would have had to scramble to obtain, collect, and um, catalog, and then figure out, how do we present this now? Do we put it in an acrylic vitrine just all crumpled into each other? Do do we paste it onto a board with some archival material? Like, what do we do? Um, that would have at least offered some kind of tension between the artist and the auction house. But what inevitably happened is that the, the object, even though it's n- literally not intact, uh, so to speak, it's still kind of one whole piece. Um, oh, it totally is. Like,
0: it... By not shredding all the way and by being trapped in the frame, or you know, we still—I I don't know if we completely know, like, if it clogged the shredder or what the deal is. But it, well, that combined with the fact that Banksy's authentication service after the original shredding happened renamed the piece, what from like "Girl with a Balloon" to "Love is in the Bin." I mean, it's it, it's kind of the best publicity stunt. And for the record. Sotheby's says that, you know, they, like William said, they had no idea that it was going to happen and that, you know, all that. But what William, you alluded to in Ben Davis's article is that these auction houses have a responsibility to their clients to give like condition reports on pieces that come to auction, which normally means that pieces are inspected thoroughly. So, you know, if it's a framed work, it would be taken out of the frame and they would see if there's a signature on it and all that kind of stuff. And The auction houses, one of the top auction houses in the world's inability to notice a shredder built into the frame. Of course, Ben Davis extrapolates and is like, well, what if there was a bomb in the frame? Or what if there was, you know, all these different things? But it is hard to believe that someone didn't know that it was going to happen. Maybe... You know, maybe the head of Sotheby's didn't know what was going to happen, or maybe the person hitting the gavel didn't know what was going to happen, but its I'm hard-pressed to believe that no one within that institution had any knowledge, and that doesn't mean they told anyone either. It could have just been, you know, the person who brought the piece to auction and the the conservator who did the condition report and unpacked it from the frame, but someone had to know something. It's the question of, like, who knew what when, and we're never going to know that, but it's just... It's also kind of not really important because the important thing is this piece happened and it created a viral moment in 2018 that was everywhere. I mean, people were asking like my parents were asking me about it, random people who are not involved in the art world that know who that know that I am were asking me about it. Like this was a ubiquitous news story in 2018.
1: Absolutely. Um, and maybe this is a little too rote. But it kind of, the the theater of it um, reminds me of the very recent Jens Hanning event, wherein his stunt possibly could garner value for all parties. Um, The initial action was uh, surprising, maybe shocking, and alarming. Um, it, It created a little bit of tension between the artist and the museum which allowed for it to be a news piece um, if the museum had been happy it had happened then it would have played out differently perhaps it wouldn't have sparked intrigue as much but regardless the outcome could possibly be that the artwork itself gains value and then the artist is able to capitalize on that and therefore then Jens Hanning can return the money to the museum and everybody walks away unscathed. Everyone walks away unscathed but also with free press. With press absolutely and that the the flag, the promotional uh ripped flag outside of Sotheby's kind of to me is a very adamant signal that um Sotheby's is has completely decided how they feel about this which is that (laughs) they're really cool with it um that takes a little bit of the wind out of the auction house as a platform as a stage for interesting theater um and i kind of i i would like to (laughs) i mean whatever i'm i'm not immune to a a viral moment it it's fun to see
0: i feel like there's multiple reasons that sotheby's was cool with it like A, um, the original buyer of the work ended up buying the piece even though it had been shredded, which, you know, I, I, I don't know the legal ramifications of that, but I would think that in some capacity, the buyer would have had the ability to say, that's not the piece that I purchased. You know, the, the artist's authentication company literally introduced a new title to the piece. So that was not the piece that was on auction. So I would I would assume, again, I, I don't think a buyer would really do this in this case because it was so popular, but that the buyer could have pulled out had they wanted to. Um, But also the piece coming back to Sotheby's for an even higher estimate, it was only estimated to sell between 5.5 and 8.2 million and it sold for 25.4. So it sold for three times the high estimate, which is also crazy and has been happening just in general with a lot of auctions recently. But also the kind of funny thing that we haven't mentioned yet is Sotheby's was okay with it. Um, But also they, they removed the batteries and some of the shredder components From the frame. So they were like and and they reached out to Banksy's authentication service and were like, hey, is anything gonna happen this time? Um, so it's like, you know, they're they are totally behind selling this ultra famous, uh, viral piece of contemporary art. Um, but at the same time, they're like, But we but but we don't want it to happen again right now, at least because we want to collect our money on this sale and move on.
1: Something that could be interesting is if Banksy betrayed them and said no no it's fine nothing will happen and then he pulled something else completely you know betraying Sotheby's trust and yet um as it's shown this kind of activity at least for Banksy really uh multiplies the value of the work so they would be stuck between a decision of working with a completely untrustworthy artist and uh, not selling extremely valuable work. Um, That would, I mean, it would definitely up the ante uh, because it's not that I necessarily wanted the piece to implode at this sale uh, per se, but it kind of, you know, it just kind of walks back what the work was trying to do when it was sold initially if it can now just forever exist um in this semi-destroyed state not even to the full extent of that Banksy wanted it to uh self-destruct
0: well and before we move on from this topic you know I mean this is one of the things we almost can't not talk about just because it's I mean it's a follow-up on a viral story but also who doesn't love it when uh, someone's like crazy viral um effort ends up just turning them a huge profit and you know of course it's not even banksy's profit it's the the buy the allegedly unsuspecting buyer of the work who is able to turn it around and uh and make an 18 you know uh, sell it for 18 times what they paid for it um but william you also mentioned mentioned the jans Hanning uh viral story that happened recently. Uh, If you're listening to this and you don't know what that story is, it's uh, where an artist recently um, received $83,000 from a Danish museum to create an artwork and then basically turned in blank canvases to the museum and said he was going to run off with the money or said he was not going to return the money. Uh, If you want more on that story, you can listen to last week's or uh, two weeks ago's Art Dirt. Um, Where we talked about that. Uh, William, any final thoughts before we go on to the Vienna museums that
1: are using OnlyFans? I just wanted to say I would if I were to purchase um, Love is in the Bin, I would put the batteries back into the shredder and just see what happens. Just on on
0: the off chance that Banksy's walking by with the remote control or that some radio wave interferes with the shredder and it turns it back on.
1: Yeah, put the batteries in and then put a live streaming camera on it and just wait <laughs> until something happens.
0: Okay, so uh, number two for this week. Um, this is a story that's been kind of percolating uh, really recently, actually. Um, there are a number of articles that have been published recently really in the last few days about it. But uh, the gist of the story is that um, a few museums in Vienna have had problems posting artworks from their collections on social media. Um, There were problems with them posting artworks like the Venus of Willendorf, um, various other, you know, classical paintings that ha- that depict nudity. Um, this is not a problem that only these museums have had. There have been numerous op-eds uh, about uh, Facebook and Instagram's problems with their algorithms of catching art up in their explicit filters. Um, the Tourism Board of Vienna has decided that their way around this, and also, you know, I, I they're saying it's not really a publicity stunt and everything, even though, I mean, it's getting a ton of press and take that for what you will. Um, but their alternative to normal social media sites is to create an OnlyFans account for the city's museums. Um, if you don't know what OnlyFans is, it's an app where viewers can pay money to subscribe and view creators' content. Um, oftentimes the content is, uh, sexual in nature in some way shape or form only fans is a platform that's largely used by sex workers um kind of as a revenue generator and as a way to be able to control who can see their content um it also was in the news pretty recently because you know because it that's the main function of only fans at this point um only fans initially said that they were going to start banning explicit content from the platform and after outcry very quickly kind of pulled that back um but the the idea the idea of art institutions or artists using OnlyFans isn't necessarily a super new concept or at least individual artists. Um, but I I kind of I, I love the idea of these uh, m- museums in Vienna posting their sexually explicit artworks with like normal descriptions of the artwork and using OnlyFans as this almost like weirdly educational tool. Um William what you've read quite a few of these stories what do you think about this
1: Yeah ever since OnlyFans um grew to prominence and there's a couple other platforms that follow the exact same model as OnlyFans it's just a subscription it's a platform that enables subscribers to pay for content from discrete users. So rather than Facebook, where anyone can sign up and anyone can post and anyone can see what's on there, um, which is an older freemium model, uh, it the reins have been pulled in a little bit um, as everyone's trying to, frankly, get a, a more direct hold on the revenue stream that attention uh, is possible of garnering on the internet. We've seen a rise in this stuff like Patreon and OnlyFans. And in just ownership in general of content. Right, exactly. Um, so in the past, you used to be able to just post a video of your four-year-old doing something quirky on YouTube, and then next Tuesday you could be on the Alan DeGeneres show. Um, that It's not that that doesn't happen anymore. It's just that the whole world has caught wind of that, and so the the total like competitive pool is higher. Um, so... Ever since OnlyFans premiered, I was curious to see if um, there would be any kind of creative or artistic output coming from the platform. And so far, not quite so much. Around uh, August, the founder stated that, as you mentioned, Brandon, that they would be banning pornographic content because banks uh, were blocking intermediary payments, which I believe means the payments to the performers, the, the individual people hosting content, producing content on the site. BNY Mellon, Metro Bank, and Morgan Chase blocked intermediary payments to these performers. And as a result, the founder decided, okay, we're going to have to shift gears. And then just a few days later, after an outcry from the users of the site, they walked that back. They have still faced difficulty garnering investor interest because of the volatile nature of selling pornography on the Internet. Well, and William, you mentioned those, the bank payments. Another issue that's
0: come up is just credit card processing companies don't want to process um, transactions for sex work, I believe, because of some of the liability that can be open to that, but also just, you know, you can't ignore the social stigma around sex work,
1: uh, which is always kind
0: of uh, in the background of these conversations.
1: I think that liability weighs more heavily than um, stigma in this kind of business. Uh, Also reading about this, I read that I believe it was in 2019, the New York Times investigated Pornhub and found that Pornhub was hosting content that featured abuse and non-consensual acts. And uh, as a result, Visa and MasterCard said, we're not allowing our payment services to be used on your platform. So there's a cascading effect of, and what's interesting is that it's, or perhaps not interesting, but just inevitable is that Um, it comes down to money, not purely in the value sense, but in the sense that these banks, these transaction processing services don't want to have blood on their hands. And the more that it comes to light, the more that banks and credit card companies are going to be like, well, now there's evidence of it, so we have to act. Um, For example, as a result of this news cycle, I'm sure, OnlyFans received 783 requests for information from law enforcement agencies um, just between this past summer and the summer preceding. Uh, So people are watching them, people are looking at them. Um, But to circle this back to the art conversation, um, the Vienna Tourist Board is tackling a different problem, which is that Social media services, social media platforms don't want to be too loose and free with what they allow on their platforms, so they can't promote their classical art. Well, this is this is something that we can
0: also kind of ground um, in. Glass Tires experience, William, because, you know, we'll occasionally publish uh, photos of performances that contain nudity or photography that contains nudity. And whenever we even as a publication post on social media platforms, you know, we don't want our content to be caught in the algorithm either. So this is something that, you know. Your local arts institution, uh, be it whoever they are, has probably had to deal with and really strategize about and has maybe had posts taken down or has maybe had um, has maybe, you know, had their account been threatened to be suspended because of posts that they've made or tried to uh, tried to use to promote their and the artists that they work with work.
1: Yeah, it's it's a weird effect that I don't know so much that attitudes around sexuality or depictions of sexuality have changed so much as that the to get marshall McLuhan on <laughs> on the pod um there's just a panopticon effect that has happened since the internet since telecommunications um now we all say do and display aspects of our lives online because we all use TikTok and facebook and linkedin um so now these platforms have to decide how they're going to manage that. Um, And another elephant in the room is that because of the pandemic, Vienna arrivals plummeted uh, almost 80% in 2020 compared to the year before. So they're kind of looking for a way. I I think you're right, Brandon. There's, There's a little bit of stuntiness to this, but it's not... For nothing, there's a confluence of obstacles facing um, their museums, their tourism in general. And so I think it's actually a fairly smart way to use the platform. Um, It ensures that their content won't get taken down. So they won't have to make a new TikTok account because their old one got flagged. And albeit small,
0: it also is a revenue generator because you have to pay, you know, if there's a promotion, it looks like there's a promotion right now that it's like $3 a month, but you pay $5 a month and you also get a ticket to one of these museums if you subscribe to their OnlyFans account. Um, So it, it kind of has that component, albeit it seems like it would be a minor factor.
1: I don't know. When I saw that, my ears perked up. I thought, oh, wow, an incentive some kind of incentive to give me access to Vienna. Um, and the their OnlyFans, the Vienna Tourist Board, it does have, I believe I saw 300 subscribers. So, I mean, that's... For an individual performer, um, 300 subscribers at $5 a month each, that's a decent amount of revenue. For a museum, Not that's not a ton of revenue, but, I mean, it shows interest, and it is money. Um, another... Difference between a say a a tourist board and an individual producing content on the internet is that an individual can't really sell any more access to themselves other than the videos they make. A tourist board has businesses, museums, square footage, so it makes sense that they would they could use OnlyFans to say if you come in and uh, give us a subscription, we will give you membership perks back.
0: Well, and William, going back to like what you said about the Vienna arrivals or just Vienna tourism being affected overall by the pandemic, um, I feel like over the last year and a half, partly because of the pandemic and because social media has been so essential um to artists trying to share their work you know in a time of limited gallery shows and limited availability and limited travel that we've seen more and more op-eds and essays about how artists have been affected by um just social media's uh, algorithms that police explicit content because explicit art is allowed on Instagram but you know what does that mean if it's a photograph what makes the photograph quote-unquote art, you know, it kind of brings up like age-old questions and and conversations that are within the art world, but it takes them to social media and to like the general uh, public almost. Uh, There's a really nice, we'll link to it in the comments in this post on Glass Tire, there's a really good opinion piece called The Real Problem with Instagram on Art News uh, by Clarity Haynes. Um, And there have been another, uh, and there have been Uh, many other posts recently that kind of tackled the same issue of Instagram policing uh, quote-unquote explicit content. Um, And before we wrap up also, um, William, uh, you mentioned all of the problems that Pornhub has had recently just in relation to um, videos featuring minors or uh, videos featuring non-consensual sex or uh, all of that. I feel like one of the things that they that company that Pornhub has been trying to do in recent years is they've they're trying to redirect the conversation in some way, shape or form by doing stunts or the wrong word. It's it seems like it's kind of real programming, but they're trying to like kind of salvage their brand a little bit, um, which is kind of a crazy thing to say about Pornhub. I don't know how you salvage a porn websites brand just in general or make it more palatable uh but one of the things that we didn't really cover when it was happening but it happened earlier this year is that uh Pornhub created a tour basically of um sexually suggestive or explicit artworks they're not necessarily explicit in the sense that they are sexual but they are nudes um and it covered I mean it covered a a bunch of the world's most famous museums. Uh, it covered the Uffizi in Florence, the Prado in Madrid, the Louvre, um, the Musée d'Orsay, the National Gallery in London, and the Met in New York. Um, and, you know, three of these museums, the Uffizi, the Prado, and the Louvre, were very quick to kind of uh, threaten to sue and issue takedown notices because they probably understandably didn't want to non-consensually be involved in a Pornhub, uh, website feature about, uh, that involved artwork from their collections. Um, that's kind of also just an interesting angle of Pornhub trying to force their artwork partnership on these museums. Um, but some of it is still up. It doesn't seem like any of the videos are still up, which were kind of, in my opinion, would be the most controversial part of this is, uh, this section of Pornhub's website featured audio tours. It featured written descriptions and tours of the chosen artworks. But for six of the artworks, it also featured video interpretations that were essentially pornographic videos, Um, which is just this whole project was kind of a weird, interesting, bold choice by the website to it seemed like in their mind open art up to people who may not be as aware of it
1: right it's a a little bit of a shame that everyone's kind of too stuck in their own lane um and that sexuality and art kind of is the fall guy for all of it um I there's probably some uh, internet theorist that has covered this already like evgeny Moritzov or uh, but um, it's it's a bit of a shame that there's something about designing a information system, a media platform that begets homogeneity. It's something that all uh, founders of digital platforms fear. You hope that you can design a platform that will uh, engage a plurality of users because you want the most users possible so your business is sustainable But inevitably, over and over, what ends up happening is that uh, human behavior, even though it is variable, um, doesn't seem to be that way when it engages with media platforms. There tends to be one popular or successful way to use something, people figure it out, and then that's all that it's good for. Um, That's not exactly the, the point. Of what you're saying, Brandon, which is that Pornhub tried to be a little flexible and a little elastic by saying, you know, let's open the definition of pornography a little bit to engage with the history of contemporary art, and then the museum said, no, 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 do not include us in that conversation. Get out of Get out of my house.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I feel like there's an added complication, even of you know. It- This uh, section of Pornhub's website was like, hey, here's a map of the museum. Open our website in the museum and read and walk around. And I, I feel like that can be inherently problematic if I could see these museums being like, we don't want you on your phone on Pornhub while you're walking around this museum. You know, I feel like that's a perfectly normal ask and understandable ask and concern that these museums would have because what if you hit a wrong button or what if you know like these videos these sexually explicit videos were embedded on some of the pages that Pornhub wanted you to visit um so I f- I feel like I feel like it could have you know whether it's just Pornhub trying to revamp their brand or not it could have been an interesting project if they had maybe actually I don't know tried to work with museums Right on it in a way that actually involved the museums you know the basics of consent in a way
1: (laughs) right yeah and I have no idea what kind of management structure a company like Pornhub has Um, but I would imagine their kind of approach to development or whatever the corollary would be is not the way that like nonprofits and museums operate so maybe there's just no one at the company in the headspace to understand but the idea is i don't know it's i don't think it's a terrible idea i just i agree it's like they would need an someone whose job it is to be like hey can someone to figure out how to run partnerships really is all it is
0: um and you know there's i feel like there is a lot more to this (laughs) to that story specifically we'll link some Uh, articles that were being published by other outlets when that was really live and happening. Um, It seems like I I went and looked at it before we got on, William, and it seems like really there are only three museums left. um, And also, I don't see any of the videos still up either. So this project is kind of a shell of what it was launched as a couple months ago. Um, But, you know, either way, they also kind of build it as a beta test, so we'll see if they even try and follow it up with a, a more thorough project.
1: They should call Vienna. <laughs> yeah, actually, that would be a perfect partnership, it seems. Somebody get
0: those two together. And, uh with that that is our art dirt for this week thank you so much for listening uh if you want to read more about anything that we discussed this week you can see all of the links that we have been reading at uh, glasstire.com on this posts page and yeah we suggest if you're able and you feel comfortable that you go out and go see some art go see some art thanks everyone This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.